Good afternoon, everybody. How you doing? This is your host, William Moore, and this is Chill Time is Will Time. I am excited because I actually have two guests for you guys to listen to today. Um, two people have been gracious enough to spend some uh, some time with me and kind of talk about their work, talk about their life, talk about some of their goals. And they're also um, podca- fellow podcasters themselves. They have a real awesome podcast called um, the Peep Show Podcast. Um, that I've had the uh, privilege to listen to um, a few times and, and I've actually began to listen to it on the regular. And um, uh, without any further ado, I'm going to let them go ahead and introduce themselves. So you guys, go ahead. Hi, I'm Jesse Sage. I am one of the hosts of the Peep Show podcast. Um, let's see, I'm a writer and a podcaster and an academic and a phone sex operator and I make some occasional porn with PJ. Uh, And I'm PJ Sage, and I am a lot of the things as well. I am a uh, Jesse's co-host on the Teach Show podcast, and also a writer, and an academic, and an activist. So, uh, happy to join you. Yeah, and we're a couple, too, if that's not obvious. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I knew that, but it's good that you guys clarified in case... Any of the listeners kind of didn't pick that up um, uh, themselves. <laughs> they probably will after they hear us uh, <laughs> bicker throughout this interview. No, I'm just kidding. We won't bicker. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. So both of you, you know, kind of just already went in and kind of talked about how, I mean, I mean, you both have numerous titles. Um, and what I'm, one of the original, the, the first questions I'm kind of interested in uh, really asking you and get kind of getting background on is like, Kind of take me through your origin story of your podcast. Um, like, where did it come from? Because um, I know some podcasts, like, some people have, like, these elaborate stories of how they came to, like, this, you know, this grand project or whatnot that they uh, wanted to embark in. And then some, like, somebody like me, like, mine was just really simple. It was like, uh, you know, I don't like standing up in front of a lot of people and talking. I blog from time to time. But I think trying to podcast thing would be cool, so I just did it. And so mine's isn't very complicated. <laughs> yeah, so mine's isn't very complicated at all. It's just a way to me to kind of like vent and just you know talk and stuff. So can you guys mind taking me kind of through your origin story of your podcast? Yeah, sure. I don't know. Do you want to start or? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's not all that dissimilar, but it did. We do, I guess, have somewhat of a backstory. Uh, it started with a road trip, right? Yeah. We were going to where was it? Montreal. Montreal. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for an academic conference. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the great things about road trips are that you have a lot of time to just sort of talk and think through life and, you know, other things. And and it was actually, the road trip was twice as long as what we expected it to be. Oh, for time, what a hectic. How did, what, wait, wait a minute, twice as long? How did that happen? <laughs> uh, well, so we had our, this is the story of the podcast, we had our baby <laughs> with us and we drove... Uh, we drove over the border uh, when we went to Canada, and when you drive That's over... That's not even true. We drove to the border. Okay, yeah. I was, I was going to skip over the part that makes us look like flakes. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, we forgot his birth certificate, and yeah. so we had to have uh, his grandma overnight it, so we got stuck at we, the border. In, yeah, we got stuck at the border, so we had to stay in on the New York side of Niagara Falls for the night and then we finally had his birth certificate and they let us drive over the border but PJ was going to stay longer and drive home by himself and I was going to fly home with the baby because at the time I had this corporate job so I was only going to be there half the time and so he dropped us off at the airport and then I called like an hour later and said hey um, they're not going to let us leave the country (laughs) he's like why and apparently with a baby, you can drive over the border with a birth certificate, but you can only fly with a passport, which we didn't know. No, so we learned that the hard way. So we learned that the hard way. So PJ had to drive us home, which he did not expect to do. So we had 12 hours to just talk, unexpected 12 hours. And on the road trip, we came up with the idea of the podcast. Wow. And so this... That's, yeah, that's definitely, like, not, I don't, I think, I actually think that's a, like, not similar to mine at all. That's, like, <laughs> mine was just, like, well, I mean, my, we were having border, border passing issues that turned into a podcast. Right, right. I mean, at the end of the day, we really just wanted to do it, though. I mean, that's why you do podcasts. And, I mean, you also have to situate that in, like, a broader story. Um, I had been uh, doing some camming and then you know for a number of years and then we had started doing that together and then we started making clips together and Jesse started doing phone work and um and so we were kind of we had played around and did a, a number of forms of sex work at that point and at the same time I was also like in the process of writing a dissertation on camming where I went out and interviewed like over 30 cam models about their experiences doing the work and kind of what issues really stood out for them um, that we should be talking about and that we could kind of make better. And, uh, you know, as part of that project for me, I felt like, you know, academic research, you're really pressured to write for like an academic audience and, um, there's something that seems so problematic about doing, like being so involved in a community and doing all this work and then not giving directly back to that community or directly engaging with that community. Mm-hmm. So one of the things 
that I really liked about the idea of a podcast is that I could do interviews similar to like the interviews that I was already doing for my research, but do them in a very public way and um, that would allow like people to tell their stories. Yeah, that would allow and give people yeah to give people a platform to really tell their stories kind of unfiltered through us. I mean, we sort of curate and filter it a little bit, but we also give people space to just you know share. Uh, things they're working on or uh, things they find really interesting or important. And um, and I just really liked the idea of being able to put that out directly uh, and not kind of go through this academic process where, you know, you anonymize everybody and everything's so disconnected and it's not really for the people you're talking about. And uh, so it's all the work that, I and I think we both are doing like big concern was, you know, engaging with and giving back and um, to sex workers and to kind of pushing um, decriminalization and other sex work related political issues forward. It just made sense to do a, to do something that was like more direct. And that's why a podcast seemed like a really good option. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you, PJ, so, you know, from my interpretation of like the academic world is a lot of times it can be very it it can be not always it and it really depends on like what school you go to and stuff like that but the higher up you get like you know there's the politics there's some of the elitism some of like the snooty type of attitudes when you kind of decided that you were going to do your dissertation on this did you get any type of pushback or did you sense any type of like you know, any type of negative energy coming about because of that, because of the, like, the, the, the negative, like, myths and stuff about sex work or cam work, anything like that? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, lots. Uh, I think that, <laughs> I want to say that I think a lot of people had it worse than I did. A lot of people get kind of drummed out for trying to do this work, or it's made so hard that they just can't do it or maybe can't graduate, um, I was able to kind of navigate it at my school, but it was definitely difficult. I had to be really careful. It was really political. Like, I had to sort of vet and feel out the politics of every single professor I worked with. I had to go through this ethics process that was really kind of uh, unbelievably difficult. They sort of treated my... Uh, dissertation in the same class as like, you know, brain cancer studies and stuff like, you know, the perceived danger of what I was doing was so great. It got this like incredibly thorough review and they were... award that knows nothing about sex work. Yeah, and they did it. They had no clue uh, and all they sort of saw was danger, danger and uh, it, it, it was really difficult because I felt like a lot of the things that they recommended were really patronizing to um, the sex workers I was studying, the, the idea was that, you know, these people weren't um, competent to make their own decisions, that they were this um, population that we really had to, you know, protect because they don't know um, 
help to take care of themselves. Or like they were yeah. all being taken advantage of or something like that or come from... Right. Because some of the... Some of the right. so, yeah, because some of the myths and stuff that I've heard about it before I started kind of like really getting educated about it is like everybody, at least most of the people that I have come in contact with have this perception that anybody who is like engaged in sex work has like has some like troubled past that makes them want to do that or has or somebody that has like some sort of low self-esteem and it's yeah 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 yeah. and the the fact of the matter is is that there may be some people in industry like that but that's in every industry that's in every walk of life it's no different from any other right yeah i I mean i I think i think that's definitely true and i think that a lot of those stereotypes or perceptions um are overblown but that's what happens when you know, you're, you have the kind of stigma we have around sex work. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those kind of myths or stereotypes are allowed to persist in people's mind and nobody really challenges them. And um, so I definitely ran up against a lot of those assumptions. And um, luckily, you know, there are many, there are a couple decades now of really great research that I was able to draw upon and say, hey, look, these people um, were able to do this work, and it was really important and helpful, so I want to, you know, follow in their footsteps. Uh, but you had to collect that information and make that case. I did. I had to make it. They to just said, case. oh, it's great, study can it. Yeah, yeah. It was hard work, but, <laughs> yeah. but I was able to, I, I think that, you know, had I done this in the 90s, right. it would have been so much harder. Um and it still is difficult, but but I really uh, appreciate, you know, there's a whole generation of people, Elizabeth Bernstein, Kate Frank, uh, Wendy Chapkiss, you know, to name a few, who, like, just blazed this trail that, you know, made it really conceivable for people like me and other people in, like, kind of my generation um, to do this kind of research uh, without it completely being dismissed. But, yeah, it's still highly stigmatized. And the other issue that's involved with it is that you really have to out yourself in the process of doing it. And that was kind of complicated because it was actually some of the best professors who pushed me to out myself in the sense that they were like, how could you really study this population? How are they going to trust you? You know, what it, like, like, you're just some dude, like, you had to show that you had, you had to show that you had credibility. Yeah, and I had it, so then I had to be like, well, no, I'm not just some dude, actually, I've been part of these communities for a long time, and, and I had to then do a bunch of writing to kind of talk about my own history, and um, I really had to open up, and that's a conversation that Jesse and I both had, because, of course, then outing myself meant outing her, and um, it, 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 the whole process was was complicated was that a tough conversation between the two of you when, when you had to make that decision yeah it's funny to hear him say that because it's been it hasn't been an issue in the last couple of years in the sense that we both just kind of came out and we've been very public and we've become uh, through the podcast and through some of our writing uh, and through some of our activism public sex work figures in a sense and so now it seems that we kind of just take that for granted but you know three years ago it was a really difficult conversation and 
for a lot of personal reasons. I mean, I had a, I had a, I left my PhD program four years into it and was working a corporate job, which would not have been, you know, supportive whatsoever of that. And I was, while he was in his PhD, you know, supporting the family with that corporate job. So I was a little concerned about that. And there I was, I am divorced and have kids and with, uh, with my ex-husband, and so I was concerned that it could impact my custody situation, and so there was a lot of, like, very real concerns that were really difficult to negotiate, and now, because we are so public and are so out, our life has become immensely easier in a lot of ways, because we're not juggling that, um, that kind of dual life, but getting there was not at all easy. And as you said, I think the custody issue is the biggest issue, and a lot of people don't understand that. Even if you're doing legal sex work, even if you're a camera or a porn performer or a dancer, it's still the case that judges, based on their own bias and stigma, can rule against you in custody cases. They have a lot of mm -hmm. discretion to say whether or not you're like a fit parent. And, uh, or, just to, you know, take that, their stigma and bias and kind of channel it differently and just be like, well, you don't have a stable income. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of these kind of issues come out sideways. But in any case, like, when you have kids, uh, it, it is precarious. It, right. it doesn't really matter if what you do is legal. It matters if... Uh, if, How judges perceive yeah, it. Yeah, if judges think, perceive you to be unfit based on the fact that you do this kind of work. And that's really up to individual bias. It, it could go different ways depending on which judges you get. And we know from talking to our network of people in the community that uh, we interact with, it goes yeah. different ways all the time. And, and it goes... Um, the unfortunate way where people lose access to their kids um, far too often, and, and, it, and it's really tragic. Yeah, I have to say that we, at one point, we just decided that we either were going to do the work that we were doing, which includes the sort of meta work, which includes the writing and the podcast and the public speaking that we were doing um, about sex work, or we're not going to do it, but you can't be like half in and half out and expect any of anything to pan out as successful at all. And so at one point we just decided, okay, and part of that had to do with the fact that I was laid off from my job, which was the biggest blessing, um, in the sense that we were like, okay, well now let's just do it. <laughs> let's do this thing that we wanted to do and let's be public about it. And that has opened up a lot of doors in the sense that since we have, I don't know, since we're now, since we are public and we are out about what we're doing and the work that we think is important and why we think it's important, we can just do it. Um, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's already... It's really freeing. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's probably like a year and a half ago now. I had a long yeah. conversation with a industry performer named Dahlia D, who, in my opinion, is like one of the smartest people in the business. Like, she's like a really true thinker like she just gets it and she said exactly that you know you either have to be all in or all out there's no in between and anyone who thinks there's an in between it's just delusional
deluding themselves and you're just going to hurt you and, and the people around you trying to be half in. And it like took me a while to wrestle with that. But in retrospect, I think she's completely right. And when we finally made the decision to, to be all in, um, it, it was freeing, but it also allowed us to be like a lot more effective in the work that we're doing. Like we're yeah. better at the job, we're better at the adult work, we're better at the political work. Um, it certainly has come at a cost. It was a lot of family strife that mm-hmm. uh, was and is still associated with um, coming out that openly. Uh, but it, you know, at the end of the day, for us, I think it was it was freeing. But on the other hand, we also have a lot of privilege. Like yeah. we're um, white, highly educated, you know, um, academic-y people mm-hmm. uh, who are, you know, probably most advantaged when it comes to like you know the legal system and the way that we're going to get treated right. by judges or cops or you know whoever and uh i wouldn't necessarily say you know if it's like a, a black trans woman said you know was saying should i come out or something you know like i don't know i, I can't <laughs> yeah. say that for other people that it would be freeing in the way that it was for us i think for a lot of other people it could be really harmful so yeah. you know i i say all that but i also kind of want to check my own privilege here and say like I think it was freeing for us because of other, uh, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because of the position we occupy in our lives. And I think that if we were in a different position, um, the consequence or the way it played out might have been different or less advantageous. Well, you're also yeah. able to kind of support each other too, and I think that goes a long way. Like you can't underscore. Um, the support that you get from, you know, you might get a lot of strife from significant others, but the type of support that you get from someone close can really help carry you through, you know, to the other end of that, um, you know, to the other other end of that situation. I think that's absolutely right. We've even said that to each other sometimes, particularly when we're having a lot of issues with our parents who weren't happy with the work that we were doing. We would sit together at night and be like, well, we have each other, you know, and that goes a long way. Yeah, for sure. So, in regards, like in regards to the podcast, like so, we you, you know we talked about how like you kind of came up with the idea of it, and then let's look at it like how it's kind of like um, how it's how it's grown or whatever. Has the theme from how you originally thought it changed compared to what it is it now, or is, or is the, what the podcast is now exactly what you figured it would be when you were kind of hatching the idea to start it? I actually think that it became much more sex work heavy than we originally thought it was going to be. I don't know if PJ could uh, disagree with me if he wants, but I think we set it out at the beginning to think that we were going to talk about general issues of sex and social justice, which we do, and we talk a lot about gender and sexuality, but we, because we're so immersed in the community that we're immersed in, um, I think that it's... Uh, it has more of a sex work focus yeah, than I, we anticipated. Right. I think, I, mean, I always assumed it would be sex work heavy. I, I wanted it to be, I mean, we named it Peep Show for a reason. It wasn't like, <laughs> right. you know, um, we wanted that to be front and center and maybe, like, for our podcast to be a corrective on, like, um, 
other podcasts and publications and whatever um, conversations about sexuality that tend to exclude sex work you know total aside but we're like designing a gender sexuality and women's studies course right now and looking at the books like the intro books that there's they generally nothing. do to teach those courses there's almost nothing on sex work uh, or polyamory for that matter yeah. but those two things in my mind are really underrepresented like then you know there are pieces on like sex trafficking and other things like that so um, there's definitely a bias in the way that like um, sex work is either represented negatively or just altogether erased mm-hmm. and so I definitely wanted our podcast in talking about sex and social justice to be like uh, a, a corrective to that. Um, but at the same time, I think we thought it would be part of a broader umbrella and it's kind of inverted. Now the sex work theme is the center and then we bring in other stories about gender and sexuality that kind of We like kind of pepper them in. <laughs> yeah, we pepper them in that like supplement, like kind of the dominant conversation about um sex work, which is fine. I yeah, think it's, yeah. you know, I'm really happy with um, how that works out, and I, I think we've landed on a, a nice mixture. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also changed the format of the podcast, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that what, what was manageable to us when we first started, more than the first half of our episodes, we always had two guests on for shorter segments. But that's actually a lot to edit and a lot to manage, and the marketing for that is complicated. So we're like, actually, let's switch it up so that we have a guest per episode. And that's just made the workflow way more manageable. Cool, cool. So how do you, another question I kind of have for that is like, how do you come up with your material or decide what you want to talk about for different episodes? I don't, you know, it's funny, and I guess this is an interesting part about being a couple, is because we're always just talking about it or pitching ideas off of each other. I don't think we have ever been in a situation where we didn't have, like, three months worth of ideas (laughs) kicking around. (laughs) Right. And, like, our problem is just that, like, in our everyday conversations with each other, we have so many ideas floating that we're just always having to step back and be like, okay, we can't get too far ahead. We can't schedule too far out. Like we would run into this problem where we would be like recording interviews like a month ahead and, you know, and then we'd feel bad because, uh, we could, wouldn't be able to get, well, we, I mean, we put out all the interviews that we have, but there was a period of time in which there was a backlog of stuff that we had to try to get through. And yeah. And so there's just, it's a lot of just monitoring social media and saying like who's doing what things and mm-hmm. who would be interesting to talk to yeah right. Twitter and, and just reading whatever articles are coming out and uh, yeah I mean we have such a vibrant sex work community on Twitter that um, just being plugged into that makes it you know you're, there's just so many interesting things going on Mm-hmm. we couldn't even possibly cover it all. So. Right. I find that my method, I don't think that my method is really that refined because honestly, mine is all about, um, honestly, what, ca- what what has caught my attention over the, over the, over the course of the week. Either mm-hmm. if I've, you know, read something in the news or a periodical or whatever that irritated the hell out of me and I think is just <laughs> stupid and I got a vent about or something encouraging us all 
or like I'm a big geek and a big nerd. You know, if I'm reading like, you know, astronomy magazine and, you know, I, you know, some big scientific discovery, I'll go in and talk about that. But mine is really just like whatever I run into. It's not this super refined system of, well, let me plan X, Y, Z, and I'm going to talk about science this week. And then next week, talk about politics. And then the next week, talk about fashion. Like, I could have several episodes in a row where it's about politics, you know, then jump to science, and then jump to sports. It's just, it's all over the place. It's really based off of just, like, my mood by the time that I'm ready to, like, turn on the mic. And I can have an idea, like, the de- like the morning of, like, you know what? I'm going to record the day, and this is what I'm going to talk about. But if I see something during the cor- course of the day that, like, supersedes that, then I instantly, like, well, you know what? That's going to, like, you know, that's going to be on a different episode. Like, I have something already, like, saved that I wanted to talk about, like, four episodes ago. But I, like, <laughs> run across different things that I'm like, you know what? I just want to talk about this. And so it just keeps getting pushed back. So I have a question for you because I've listened to your podcast and I like it. Do you, you do something that I don't do and that I don't think that I'm capable of doing, which is carry an entire episode as a monologue. And I'm, I find that super impressive. Do you write all of that out or do you just do it off the cuff? No, like I will do like, I will make like small little notes, but I do it, mm-hmm. I, I do it off the cuff because the thing with me is like, I've never, so this is, I think it's kind of ironic and weird at the same time. So I, I, I get, I frequently get asked to do like speaking engagements, like public speaking engagements, right? Like for work or at different conferences. Like I just emceed a conference, you know, a while back. And I always tell people the reason I find that funny is because there's nothing that I'm really not much that I'm ever really afraid of on this planet. But what I do get like petrified about is speaking in front of a bunch of people. And I think, like, I don't like speaking in front of a bunch of people. But for some reason, people keep asking me to do it. I like to uh, tell people. And then when I'm done, it's funny because when I finish, people are like, oh, that was great. And when you said this or when you said that. And, like, have, have either one of you guys seen the movie Old School with Will Ferrell when they're on the campus and they make the fraternity and all that? No. I, I did a long time ago. So, all right. So, you did, PJ. So, do you remember the part where, like, they have to prove that they have to go through these series of tests to prove that they're fraternity, and then uh, Will Ferrell and a, and, and a couple of the guys have to get up and they have to do they have to basically debate like James Carville and then uh, a couple of these other scholars from a different like a college or prep school, and basically they ask a question and Will Ferrell like he like blacks out and just does like this perfect speech right, and everybody's like uh, yeah. yeah yeah and everybody claps. And then they asked James Carville to re- like to give a rebuttal, and he's like, "I don't, I don't even know what to do. That was perfect." But Will Ferrell has no damn idea what he was talking about. I often find that that is usually me after I do like some type of speaking engagement. I have no idea what I said, but people are happy, so I'm good with it. So <laughs> I find that yeah, yeah. So I find that like the less I try to script stuff, the more. Almost the more in control I feel, I feel like when I script stuff a lot, like when I when I try to really like do a lot of scripting with it, um, it makes me kind of I think it, it unnerves me because I get too focused on trying to make it uh, stick to this like s- like this super structure that I put together and make it sound right, 
where whereas if I put like a very kind of loose fitting structure out there and I just kind of have like main points and then I just kind of go off the right. cuff with my main points, I feel much more comfortable that I do better. So, I, I mean, I know I kind of rambled on, but I hope that answers your question. Yeah. yeah. No, it's interesting because I think we learned exactly the same thing, which is hard for us. Right. I think. I would yeah. speak for you, but we, we definitely tried to script things a lot more in the beginning of the podcast. I mean, not so much the interviews, but like our new segments at the beginning, and we have Learn. We totally stopped doing that. Yeah, to really just kind of have your few points and go in there and then just let things flow. And I feel like it's gotten so much better, but there's something really scary about um, throwing yourself into something um, with, you know, just a couple notes and, and, you know, hoping that it'll come out. And, yeah. And I think uh, for us, at least for me, but I think also for you, Jesse, that... It was um, a process of overcoming that fear and maybe some of our training as academics yeah. to like, just be able to go up and talk freely uh, about something and to like talk openly in the way that we would have a conversation when it wasn't on the mic. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But to do that for um, the podcast, and, and that, that took us a while to, to really ease into it did. It took us a while to talk about ourselves too, which is funny because every once in a while we'll be talking on the podcast and then we'll stop and PJ will say, "I don't think that they want to know about you know the color of our wall in our bathroom." <laughs> and, um, but a lot of times when we leave that stuff in, like that sort of personal stuff, people like. You know what? I rather like that because I feel like it. Um... So I'm a person who who likes rather like like very authentic conversation. I don't like when it feels like like if we want something like super scripted or whatever, like that's what news broadcasts and stuff for, right? And sitcoms. And so like even, you know, when I when I decided I wanted to do my podcast, I was thinking like what what is one of the other uh motivations for wanting to do the podcast? And I thought of it as being as like doing it for people who are like who are like me, who's like, I'm, you know, I'm in a, a, so many different things in work, outside of work. Um, somebody like you guys, who people who are so busy and they don't get to sit down and have that casual conversation with their friends, right? They're always on the go. Yeah. So I wanted it to be something where, you know, if you're in the car, you're on the go. You, when you listen to me, you still feel like you're, you just met one of your friends for like a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and you're just having a casual conversation. Therefore, like it's not going to be super scripted and you're going to talk about so many different things and be all over the place. And so mm-hmm. I feel like that brings a much more authentic feel. So I, I, you know, I like when you do stuff like that, even though it might seem like it, it may seem a little out of place. Like, so what? Like, we're not listening to you to be like a CNN anchor or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Like, if I want that, then that's what I'll turn on the TV for. But if I'm turning on a, I'm listening to podcasts because I want to listen to people who are not like me or have different interests or somebody who is somewhat similar to me and I have something in common with, I want to feel that. I don't want to feel like um, that they're trying to be impersonal from me. Yeah, uh-huh. that's pretty useful. It is. Yeah. That, really. mm-hmm. So another question I, c- I have for you guys is: um, What type of people do you do? You, uh, have you experienced or like really drawn to your podcast? Uh, like the, the the composition of your listeners. Yeah, 
actually hard to say. I know that the most interaction that we get from people on Twitter or even just in DMs or people telling us that they listen to it and like it is from within the sex work community. And typically what we get is people saying, wow, I really loved listening to your guest because she made me feel seen or I totally related to what they were talking about. But, and so a lot of the more emotional, like, uh, responses to our podcast come from people within the sex work community. But that being said, we also have a lot of academics who share our segments with their classes uh, if we're talking about a particular topic that they're trying to teach in class. So we get some of that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Who else would you say listens to Friends of sex workers. Yeah. People who are, like, sex worker adjacent. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are in, like, kink and... BDSM and maybe Swinger and other communities like that who, uh-huh. uh, you know, polyamory kind of relationships um, who maybe feel like they can relate to some of the issues we're talking about in terms of stigma or um, the way that, I don't know, like broader conversations yeah. mm-hmm. about the way that like society relates to sexuality, um, some sex educators. Yeah. Uh, are interested in a lot of the conversations we have. So, I, I mean, most people have some reason that they have a particular interest in sexuality as, like, a thing to talk about or, or think about or, like, the politics of sex. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, that's what we do. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, for one reason or another, they have a personal relationship to it, either, like, through their job or through their own sex life or maybe just through their personal ties to other people. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I think we're still trying to get a sense of of that. And I'm always kind of surprised when I hear that people, yeah, are listening. (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why it surprises me, but it's still kind of death. Especially with people that I wouldn't expect. Right, right. Well, that I just... had this really weird experience where I went back to my university that I had dropped out of when I uh, last year, and I it was so surreal because people who I didn't know even knew that I was doing it were treated me like I was almost like I was famous, like oh my gosh, like you have this project, and we're all listening to it, and I was like is happening <laughs> I didn't even know anybody knew about this and then people wanted to sit at the table to talk to me about the podcast and I, it was really a weird experience because I didn't even know that any of them knew that the podcast was going on or that anybody listened to it so that's a surreal that's a surreal experience because I've I've experienced that before too uh, at work and then it just in my recreation time because like I like I, I have a government job and so when I and I say at there's times like I talk about some highly political things on there, right? And I'm not yeah. and I'm and I'm not very shy at all about letting people know what side I'm on or what you know what I stand for. And so it's interesting, and and, and it's not like I like broadcast a bunch that I have one or whatever. But it, it but just like you said, certain people who will come up to you and be like, "Hey, I listened to your podcast. It's pretty good." You're like, "Really? You heard that?" Like. You you listen to that or like when I was playing soccer uh, a couple weeks ago, um, a couple dudes on my team 
that I actually hadn't seen in a while. You know, I, you know, we're getting ready, we're warming up for a game, and they're like, um, "Hey, well, you know, what I'm saying, I, you know, I heard the podcast, like, you know, it's a dope podcast." I was like, "You heard that shit?" Because I was like, "Cause, cause, cause listen, cause like, yeah." And some of them are like, and some of them like we have different views about, right? Like we have, like they're they're clear, they're clear cut, like difference in views, and like there's been times where I've gone on there and like. I'm talking big shit. Like, I'm like, I've had like a rough day and I'm like, yep. And if you think this and if you believe this, you're an asshole and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> and the fact, and the fact that they like listen to that and it's basically like I'm talking about people like them and that they're like yeah. super, you know what I'm saying? Like they're like cordial about it or they're like, you know, I, you know, I liked it. Then that's cool. Now, some of it could be about, you know, be the fact that like, I'm six foot and 240 and they don't want to be like, you're an asshole back to my face. But either way, (laughs) either way, like, you know, it surprises me that they listen to it. And so I I know exactly what you mean where you're like, I can't believe like, I don't know. It's, it's like, you just can't believe like this little project that you're doing, you do for yourself. At least you start out doing it for yourself because you want to, you want to fulfill like a creative vibe or spirit within your heart that other people got enjoyment out of it and i feel like if we can stick if we can stick to that then it'll go as far as we want it to go i feel like when things start to fall apart is when we get out of who we are you're right we get out of character and we lose track of the original reasons why we wanted to do stuff like this and 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 that's sad because that's when we're really not when we're, we're getting out of our lane we're trying to be in somebody else's lane um, and things mm-hmm. and, and, and things don't do they don't um, really mature and grow the way that they're supposed to. Right. Yeah. So so another thing I wanted would you guys kind of mind um, kind of t- telling me um, about some of your interactions you may have had with some of your listeners, whether it be positive or negative? Like, what are the most memorable interactions you 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 say you've had? For me, I I don't know. Do you want to? Say, you can go. I don't know. The negative is hard. You, I like just brush that shit off. I don't yeah. think it's hard to. I mean, I don't like. So okay, here's the negative thing, but I also brushed it off. So I wrote a piece for the Washington Post, and they didn't link to my Twitter or anything, but they did say that I did this podcast, and so I got an email from somebody that. Oh yeah. Yeah, on the podcast through the podcast website, who was mad at me about the article that I wrote, I think, and wrote to me and said, hey, I read your piece in the Washington Post, and I found your podcast, and I listened to it, and you use like too much, and you need to, you don't sound professional, and he just kind of attacked me. And then mocked you. Yeah, he mocked me, and he wrote out the entire email using like and um, like writing it out and so I I was really weird but it was much more of a you're a woman with a voice and so I'm going to mock you so I just blew that off so basically I'm like well when so basically more toxic masculinity like his ego was hurt yeah I think so I think he was like why are you getting Washington Post bylines who are you I'm gonna try to knock you down a peg I think that's what it was about because it was really strange probably because he tried to get into the Washington Post several times and didn't 
probably. <laughs> probably. I don't, it was really weird. But that's the most negative thing that's happened is somebody went out of their way to find me and track me down and tell me that they didn't like the cadence of my speech. Um, I don't know, but everything else, the, the most memorable for me or the most moving for me is we did an episode on motherhood and sex work where we had a roundtable discussion. And I, after that, had so many like beautiful messages from sex workers who are moms who don't tell anyone they're moms. A lot of them said that they need to keep that out of their Twitter presences, but how grateful they were to even hear people talk about the challenges that they faced. A couple of people sent us like money after that to support the podcast, but just like, I don't want to be a patron because for X, Y, and Z, but... Um, I so appreciated that you talked about motherhood. There was something about that episode that, like, created this, like, outpouring from moms who felt very heard. So that was maybe the most emotional one that I experienced. Yeah. Sometimes we also get feedback, like, constructive feedback of, like, hey, your podcast could be more diverse in this way or, like, mm-hmm. you should include, you know, more of these kinds of voices or... And, and that I appreciate. I mean, I think some that kind of constructive feedback of, like, how we could be more inclusive or make um, different communities feel more connected or, or more heard or more platformed by our podcast, I feel like, um, yeah. you know, we're definitely open to, to, to that kind of thing. Or sometimes you tell one story and it kind of points to another story that's not getting pulled and... You know, so somebody might step up and say, hey, what about me? Like, um, and so to the degree that we can do that, um, yeah. mm-hmm. I think that's really great. On the other hand, you know, you can only do so much in any one episode, so you also have to be like, hey, I hear you, what you're saying is important. We'll see, you know, let's try to do something on this, but we can't do everything all at once. You know? Right, right. Which sometimes I feel like it, it's hard. There's an expectation that, that you you know, cover every part of every single thing, and, and that's always kind of a, a difficult yeah. thing to wrestle with. So yeah. There's just two of us, and we do this in our free time. Yeah, it's been overwhelmingly positive, though. We get a lot of feedback, particularly from within the sex work community, of people feeling connected to the guests that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I have trouble with that, meaning, like, I wish people would critique me more. Like, I don't get a whole lot of feedback um, as far as people saying, hey, do this, change this, do that. And I know there's some stuff that needs to, that could, can improve because I've ain't, I've not been doing this very long. So I'm like, damn it, people, like, <laughs> what, <laughs> what needs to be, like, let me know what you like or dislike about it. So I always try to leave a little, you know, at the end of every episode, kind of throw the email out there and tell people, like, please tell me what you want to hear. Tell me what you didn't like, what you dislike. And so I wish that I was I actually getting more than that. I that that much. I, my mom was saying to me this morning, you know, you should really have people, like, send in questions. And then you could answer the questions on your podcast. And I'm like, Mom, people would have to send us questions for that to work. <laughs> I don't... You know, and it's hard to get people to do that. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm still trying to figure out another way to get people to do that. So whenever I figure it out, I'll let you know. If you figure out before me, let me know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, 
And so this is the last question I'm going to ask you about the podcast. And then next, I got questions for you guys, just just individuals, like your life outside of podcasting. Um, what yeah. is something that you guys wish that people uh, uh, would take away from your podcast? Um, I mean, most simply, I want people to be able to look at sex workers, look at the people that are in our lives and our friends as whole human beings and not just reduce them to their jobs. And I think that that's the biggest thing that we're trying to do is uh, allow allow for that to, to give yeah. people a platform so that they can show that they're whole human beings and that sounds so many different dimensions yeah that sounds so stupid because you would think that people would be able to think of sex workers or anybody as full people but they they don't yeah i 100% agree i think that like the first step kind of to like real cultural and political change around uh, a lot of sex work related issues is to to humanize sex workers and right Mm -hmm. now um in so much of the discussion, the public conversation around sex work, there are just kind of these stereotypical cartoon figures, you know, either these, like, you know, hapless victims or, you know, happy hookers or whatever, but, it, you know, it's, there's these cartoon stereotypes um, that aren't particularly helpful mm-hmm. um, in, in, in having, like, real conversations or in changing kind of cultural attitudes towards sex work. And so just putting a human face on um, this kind of work and not just sex work, but I think um, different kind of sexualities. Yeah, you know, sexual mi- minorities. Sexual minorities or people who have, um, you know, uh, it relate to gender differently than um you know, society deems normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of, I think putting a human face to all of that is is really helpful and politically powerful. And so I think that's what, what we try to do is just humanize people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think people don't like to humanize humanize it because a um, it's intellectually lazy uh, because they're because they're intellectually lazy meaning. Um, that's why they want to right. humanize. So it's easier to put people in boxes. Um, For sure. And B, because they're like flat out uncomfortable. Because like, even though it's not at all the same thing. Um, I remember when I was back when I was working in the public school system. And I was uh, um, I was working specifically with emotional behavioral disability children. And I was also mentoring out uh, in the same neighborhood. And coaching AAU basketball and coaching football. And a tutor, right? And I remember... Um, wow, the full plate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember being in the grocery store and running into a couple families. And they're like, Mr. Will, I can't believe I saw you here. And I'm thinking, in my head, I'm like, why not? I'm a human. I kind of need to eat. So logically speaking, like the grocery store would be a good place for me to go get my food. It's just like, <laughs> when people like affiliate, yeah. like, like I said, it's intellectually lazy. When they see you... They just see you as your occupation, so they don't think that you have anything going on outside of that. Because it's like right. we have, like, as a society, we have like dumbed ourselves down so much that it's like we'd rather watch reality TV, watch somebody else live a life that's scripted, rather than like really sit and think for ourselves that there are actual people that we interact with in the real world that have lives outside of their occupations. Yeah, 
Well, yeah, and it's not even just the occupation. It's that the the sex part of the occupation overshadows everything else. I remember one time a professor that we know who was playing a clip of our podcast for his class. One of the things that his class said was, wow, that was um, very unsexy. And I thought that that, the way that we were talking about sex work, and I thought that that was actually really interesting and made me feel like we were doing a good job because it showed that it wasn't just like the salacious details of sex, but it's actually just a a job too. People are running businesses and running lives. People's lives. I think it's, I think it's awesome that you guys are being like, basically asked to go in and and your materials being used to like educate um in universities because that's um i just don't think that that's something that should be like browsed over like taken lightly because that shows the type of impact you're having and i think it obviously shows a level of respect that people have for you all that in an industry that a lot of people have a lot of negative myths about they still call upon your work in their material to educate students yeah, well, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> yeah, we're fortunate. I mean, luckily, we also have, like, you know, I mean, we've also worked within academia, um, at least kind of, where <laughs> 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 we both have always sort of had a skeptical relationship to it, but right. uh, at the same time have, have been involved with it. And so, um, you know, we've, we've made some good connections through that. There are a lot of good people within academia who are doing good work, despite all of the negatives. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, and I'm happy. I do think ed- educating is important, and, you know, to the degree that we can make tools for that, I think it's really awesome. Yeah. Cool. So now I'm going to start. I'm just going to ask, ask you guys about yourselves individually like kind of like <clears throat> outside the podcast um so 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 just just you're an activist as well as a writer um so can you go into a little bit more about yourself like what what kind of made you want to become an activist and and, and and as far as the writing goes did that kind of come later in life or have you always kind of been a writer like is that something that you've always always been interested in doing like since grade school or something um Yes and no. So I, when I was a, yeah, when I was in grade school, I used to keep diaries of words, but I was really interested in words, and so I would keep diaries of words, and I would talk, of, and in my posts, they would be about what I was going to write when I was older and how I was going to integrate those particular words into my writing. <laughs> I didn't know this, but it- <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I'm... Not surprised. <laughs> so I didn't talk about my life. I talked about what particular words I would use when I wrote things when I was an adult writer. So I did that, but I'm not I'm not a creative writer. And I went to... Uh, I'm more of a theorist, and I'm trained as more of a theorist. So I went to grad school, and I did a ton of writing, like you have to in grad school, but none of it... I didn't... I did it just for that. And when I met PJ... Um, he was harassing me about why I'm sitting on like a mountain of work that I've never done anything with and I mean that's been kind of a thing our whole relationship he's like you've written so much and I never published any of it and I don't know earlier this year it's only been in 2018 that I decided that I would actually try to start pitching stuff to 
magazines and news outlets. And so I just, it's like I just started being a writer, but I've always been a writer. So, so, so that yes, kind of, that kind of leads me to like, that kind of gives me a little bit of a, a suspicion of like, would you, so, so then would you go on and say like, that writing was more cathartic for you and now you've just kind of, you've transformed it from more of a cathartic thing to more of a, uh, more of a discipline to where you're trying to educate and, and inform people? Um. Or I could be way off base I, about I, that. No, I was just kind of so thinking. To, it's so hard to answer that question. Um, I think that I am really interested in stories and in people's stories and I feel like if I can create um, places in which to share different insights and different stories, then I should figure out how to do that. I have kind of a complicated relationship with writing in that I love to come up with ideas and I love to have things written, but the whole in-between stage where I actually have to write is fairly miserable. <laughs> that. And every time I say I'm going to write an article, I'm like, why did I do this? I hate doing this. And then, and then I decide I like it once it's done. And then the second that I publish something, I'm like, now I need to come up with a new project. And then I get one. And then I'm like, why did I do this to myself? So <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I, I don't, I think that I feel very strongly, I mean, going back to what PJ was talking about at the beginning of the podcast, I feel very strongly that I ought to use the skills that I have in order to promote um, a reimagining of what sex work is. And okay. so I use writing as a tool to do that. Okay. Cool, cool. Well, so in terms of your activism, um, what's the most important part about your acti activism? You know, I think that... So I do sex work activism now. I help to run um, the SWAT Pittsburgh chapter. I I just was thinking about this when I was looking at um, what you wanted to talk about today. I feel like I began my activism on more of a personal scale when my oldest son came out as trans. And what happened then is that PJ and I had to really advocate for for him during the whole process of his transition. And that's a really unbelievably difficult process to go through. And you have to fight the school districts and you ha and other parents. And it's a perpetual coming, coming out every single, every single interaction that you have. And so while you're doing that, you have to do a lot of like education about trans identity and about transition and all of this stuff. And I feel like, going through that process on a personal level with our family and the work that PJ and I did to help our son get situated and... And just every acquaintance you have made over the last course of the last 10 years, anytime you run into anyone at a grocery store, anytime, like, yeah, from the most trivial interactions to, like, the most, like, you know, deepest and most, like, impactful interactions, in every case, you're constantly having to... Yeah, it's a major, major thing that I feel like that pushed me into this role of, like, public educator and activist that I didn't really want or anticipate or imagine. And I think that going through that process and then coming out myself as somebody who does online sex work, um, I, I think that 
it just put me in a position where I was doing advocacy, <laughs> doing sex work advocacy, doing trans advocacy, doing advocacy that I didn't really imagine doing that then just became so central to our lives. Okay. So we're going to go, we're going to jump back to your writing real quick. Um, mm-hmm. And that's because, and this is a, a, a curiosity question for me. Um, just because I got, like I've talked about before, like I blog a little, nothing serious because I don't consider myself like this great writer or anything, but I've talked to several different writers and I've always kind of been interested in their processes because most have a very different, they have very different processes from each other, right? So can you, mm-hmm. can you kind of walk me through what your process is? Um, yeah, <laughs> he is laughing because he thinks my process is very strange. Um, so ever since I was in grad school, when or even in college, I have to spatially organize my thoughts. So what I tend to do is I tend to type up all of my notes, type up all the quotes I want to use, everything that I'm thinking that I'm going to put into an article or into a paper, and then... I print all of those out, and then I cut them up into strips, and then I organize all of those very spatially, like on a large table. On a large table, I need a lot of dinner table. (laughs) Yeah, and then I'll say, okay, so these are all of the quotes that are about um, um, stigma related to canning, and these are all the ones that are about things related to size, and these ones are about race, and these ones are about this, and then. I'll separate them all out and then I create then kind of a geographic outline instead of outlines that other people create where I move through all the material that I have that I've spread out and then eventually I have something and then TJ edits it and then we get, you know, we talk about the editing process (laughs) and yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. Interesting. So you kind of they have computers, and you don't have to print everything out. It's like one of those maps, you know, when they're like tracing the serial killer, and they put all the strings on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a what are they? What is it like? The the suspect board or on our dining room table, so none of us can eat dinner. Ah, so you kind of she kind of makes like almost too like a like a word cloud, except she's using like phrases and quotes and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe a word salad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, PJ. This question is for you. Can you can you talk to me about your activism and tell me what you feel like your greatest strength as an activist is? Uh, I can tell you my greatest weakness. <laughs> I'm, I'm like a painfully shy introvert, and doing like any and all activists is very difficult since it's all about interacting with people. Uh, and all I want to do is stay in my room behind my little microphone and interact with people uh, one-on-one through a computer. Um, <laughs> no, but seriously, I, I don't know. I um, I mean, maybe that is a strength. I, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm more of a writer and... Um, even more than a writer, I'm an editor, <laughs> and um, and those are good skills to have. Um, sometimes they're really useful when you know you have to write like a press release and do kind of publicity stuff to and um, 
you know, organize the Political movement. strategy. Yeah, yeah, political strategy. Um, that kind of behind-the-scenes stuff is, is, I guess, what I'm, I'm good at or comfortable with. Um, but as much as I think the advocacy work is important and I always push myself to do it, I find it to be, like, the most stressful work that I do and draining. And it's, like, really hard because <laughs> it's just tons of interacting with people in, like, kind of a stressful context. And, mm-hmm. um, and well, there's well, always a lot of competing interests. And, yeah, it, so it's hard. It's, yeah, altruism. I've always said that altruistic work is never easy. Like, it's work that's needed. It's work that's always done. But it's work that people usually overlook, and it's thankless, and and it's also why a lot of people burn out too. Because there's also I feel like, until recently, not enough people uh, doing the type of work and doing enough activism and stuff like that, which actually leads me into it's the also highly criticized. I think. Elaborate, yeah. elaborate a little are- bit more. Yeah, I feel like people are quick to criticize, like how how you're doing it or how well you're doing it or in what capacity you're doing it. Oh, yeah. 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 In part, I think it's because people don't want, like, self-appointed leaders, mm-hmm. which I totally respect. I mean, if I'd never, like, stand up and call myself a leader. But, yeah. I'll, but I'll tell you I, the problem I, I have with that, though. The issue that I have with that, though, as somebody who has done, like, a lot of community work and stuff like that, is... I agree with you, right, that a lot of people don't want a self-appointed leader, Um, but I often don't think it's about that either. I think it's a subconscious desire. I think some people like some people, not all, but there are a few people out there that have a subconscious desire, like they're afraid to be free, And, and, and this is why I say that. So they don't want a self-appointed leader. They don't want, they always have something negative to say about leaders, right? But they're never ones to step up and do the hard work and the pushing and pulling either. They're like the people that when you're in a conference and you're having a meeting, everybody's throwing out these ideas, right? And they're the person that's smashing all the ideas, but they're never coming up with their own resolution. And so that's where I have an issue with that um, That itself. It's like they have, a, they have this unconscious desire to like remain like mentally enslaved. And it's like if you're not going to do the work, then move over and let somebody else do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there are those dynamics. I mean, I think we've all encountered those dynamics of right. where it's, you know, hard to, um, where things get deadlocked because there's more negative than positive in terms of, like, you know, people's energy and, like, I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you, like, uh, I mean, I feel like I am a pretty positive person and in the scheme of things. Um, like, I'm always just looking to, like, okay, how can we make things happen? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's naive sometimes. And, you know, maybe sometimes people need to be like, hey, 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 let's, you know, think about this. And I appreciate that. But on the other hand, like you said, I mean, if everything just becomes about what you can't do, then... Um, we'll never get, get anywhere. Right? Yeah, you can't get very far. And so I do think that that's that becomes difficult or if every step you take um you know the group is criticizing or you know um but it's hard it's you know you're competing a lot of different people have different perspectives and mm-hmm. you gotta try to respect i don't know i think it's a really difficult thing i think community organizing is extraordinarily difficult and the people who are really good at 
bit our like you know fucking treasures <laughs> that we should like right right for sure you know, be super happy that we have them right. I you know do my part when I can and then I burn out and then I try to recover and pick myself up and do it again but, yeah. <laughs> but there were some people you know um, some people who are able to just every day of their life do this kind of work and I have the utmost respect I can dig that. So, so I wonder. I, I'm gonna ask the both of you. <clears throat> like, what do you think? So, I, I'm one. I think um, there's been a, a kind of an awakening in political activism over the last few years as a result of like our current political climate. Um, yeah. Do you guys think? Do you guys think that that's an accurate statement, or do you think that it's always been there, but there's just now being much more of a light shine uh, shine on it? I mean, I think we can only speak to our own context. Um, I mean, I'm not an expert in, you know, political action across the board, but I right. feel like within sex work, there certainly is, like, way more... Uh, I think because the laws have become so draconian and people's lives are impacted so negatively, there is a vast... Uh, there is a a lot of people who are becoming more politically involved than they intended to be or because their identities are becoming more politicized. Yeah. Internet helps with that too in terms of like sure. networking people and, and um, bringing, you know, people may be having these experiences within their own individual communities but it's, we're able to network across communities and form like a broader political Right. consciousness like a national consciousness and we're able to learn from each other like definitely when we were like for the last summer we've been work you know a little longer than that but we've been working on this issue of condoms being criminalized um, for sex workers in Pittsburgh or in the county that Pittsburgh sits in and um, you know we were able to learn a lot from um, activists in different cities Mm -hmm. about how they were able to change those laws and it was super helpful I mean I think without being able to you know reach out to those folks like we did you know super easily yeah um it would have been a lot harder to make a difference in in our own community but I think you know we're able to um, learn from from each other very easily since we can communicate so so quickly um you know, and of course, there's a lot of downsides to technology, too. I don't want to be, like, so Pollyanna-ish. But, <laughs> but there's definitely upsides, and one of the upsides is it makes it super easy for us to connect with uh, like-minded folks across uh, the country, and that's right. definitely a big deal. Yeah. Now, earlier, the both of you kind of touched on it briefly, but I, if, if, you, if you wanted to, I kind of wanted you both to kind of expound on a little bit, like, how the two of you, like, even got into sex work? Like, was it something that you had thought about a long time before actually, like, getting involved and taking part of it? Um, or was it, like, a matter of, like, circumstance? Meaning, like, um, just the opportunity popped up and you never thought about it, but you're like, ah, the opportunity pops up. This seems like it'd be a good um, uh, opportunity financially or whatever, so let me just try it out. Yeah, I mean, we have totally different uh, experiences yeah. with that. So I'll let you speak first. 
Yeah, I guess because I, I mean, I guess I got into it for. I, I've yeah. always been interested in it. Um, I've always felt like I don't know a calling, I guess, of some sort. Like it's always made sense to me as something that I was well suited to do. Um, you know, I grew up raised Catholic and had a, in like a very sexually repressed context, and I had to deprogram a lot of that. You know in becoming an adult and kind of um, so making sense of my own sexuality was like a very conscious um, thing process that I had to go through but you know in so doing I feel like pretty secure in that and I feel like um, I don't know I also realized that I was very I don't know, I guess it helps me to not be judgmental of other people um, because I know how awful it feels to be racked with guilt about sexuality um, since, you know, that's uh, the kind of environment I grew up in. And um, I don't know, and, and I guess I just felt, like, very open to, uh, you know, and curious about other people's desires and... Um, and, you know, a nice thing about sex work is that it's very intimacy-oriented, and I think it's actually, um, certain forms of sex work anyways are very, lend themselves very well to kind of, to introverted people, um, who thrive in, like, one-on-one interactions, um, and so, uh, I feel like that level of, like, intimacy and that kind of personal, um, those kind of personal relationships just seem natural to me. And I also just, you know, on top of all that, really saw it as, I mean, I personally believe that this is the direction that our society is going in. Like, uh, as part of becoming better, we the trajectory of our society, our politics, goes through us coming to understand sex work as some something that's potentially positive within society, something that you know people can choose to do and that can can have positive impacts on people's lives. That you know we have a reimagining of what this is, and I kind of think it's a civil rights issue that's really on the horizon for us. And so you know, part of it always felt to me like it could be a really positive political work be involved in as well um and so yeah I had always kind of had an interest in and desire in doing it so it's just kind of figuring out what way of doing it made sense and it wasn't really until I stumbled on PMing and more recently like kind of DIY porn Mm -hmm. that you know I found a space that uh I don't know if my strengths seem to, to fit. And then um, when I met Jesse, it, I mean, I let you tell your own story, but I think it, it really took off because we were able to work together in a way that made it um, very effective. Or Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I came at it really differently. I don't, I'm not Catholic. <laughs> and I grew up in California and I didn't feel, I, I, didn't grow up feeling the sort of, like, shame that PJ felt. So I have a different orientation toward, like, sexuality in general, which is, I think, a little bit less 
more relaxed than that. But I, um, I came at it as a feminist philosopher. So I'm trained as a feminist philosopher, and I was in a PhD program working in feminist philosophy. And within feminist philosophy, there is a huge rift between people who are anti-sex work and those who, uh, which is actually the vast majority of the people in feminist philosophy, but. Um, and those who are doing more progressive, like, pro-sex work work. And one of the things that I found in anti-sex work, anti-pornography rhetoric um, was uh, constant uh, allusions to sex workers as not being able to, not having agency and not being able to make their own choices. And if they were saying or claiming that they thought that their work was liberating, that there was something... Um, that they were living in bad faith or they had a false consciousness or something. And what I started to realize when I was looking at all of that is that all of the people who were engaged in those conversations were not sex workers themselves, or the vast majority of them weren't. And so I was really curious if what they said made any sense to people who were actually doing the work. So part of it was an intellectual curiosity, but at the same time, time, I was also becoming disillusioned by academia in general, and particularly philosophy, which is really cut off from the world, which is connected to that. And so I became a doula. Um, in part, I got doula training in my last year when I was still doing a PhD, and part of it is that I wanted to do um, a more, I wanted to take on a more embodied practice that wasn't just theoretical, and I wanted to do the sort of intimacy work that being a doula uh, allowed for. So I was doing doula work, and that was really amazing, but I, I'm sure you you know this because I know you're trained as a doula as well. Yep. You can't make a living being a doula, <laughs> and, or at least not in the city that I live in where everybody just works as independent contractors. So... I loved that work that I was doing, but, and then I met, or then I was with PJ, I mean, I knew him when I was working as a doula, but he was interested in sex work and in camming, and I started to do a little bit of camming with him. I actually really hate camming, camming is not really my thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you've done a lot of it. At this I point, have really. done it, and I don't, I still like can't wrap my, I'm not a performer like that. Um, it just doesn't work for me. Um, the only things that I would like about it is that, you know, I'm with my, you know, partner and I like having sex with him and so we could have sex and I would just ignore the fact that the camera was there. So it's not really good for me because I'm not good at it. But but while we were experimenting with that, like PJ said, we started to do some clip production, which I actually really do like because it's creative and it's artistic. and. I was, as a feminist, just coming out of a feminist framework, I was really interested in if I could create something that would be appealing to me, too, because most of pornography is not appealing to me. So what if I could work on my own terms, create something that I thought was beautiful, uh, represent sexuality in a way that felt organic and like natural to me? And I found that I really, really liked Outbreak. Um, but kind of came at it in this, do feminists, are feminist philosophers right in what they say about people who do sex work? I found out they're not right in that, but there's a whole lot of ways that people relate to the work. And then I switched to phone sex, I actually, because I heard from somebody else that that's the thing. I really loved that. 
because I like talking to people one-on-one and it was well suited to my personality and so I kind of found that phone work and cut product porn porn independent porn production was something that really worked for me so no I didn't really come out of it in any way that was out of like desperation and I didn't fall into it I was actually really thoughtful about it in the sense that I was very curious about what kind of possibilities there are and for women and and I'm also super interested in representational politics so representations of you know I'm a 40 year old woman I'm a larger woman for for porn by porn standards at least <laughs> you know is there a place for people like me and I found out that there is okay so so before I go um kind of sum up that part you said earlier like you didn't like you didn't come into it like out of desperation I hope that's not I hope neither one of you thought that that was implying that when I asked the question earlier were you oh no I didn't okay 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 I, I, I just wanted to answer the question okay good and I also don't think that there's anything wrong with people who go into it right. for money I mean it's a job right right, exactly. right. and I do know people who went out into it out of you know I guess desperation is the only way to pick people I, I know and really respect. I know people who went into it out of desperation, desperation and stayed in it out of love or at least right. out of uh, 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 just, you know, belief that it was, you know, better work that they um, enjoyed or were suited towards more than other kinds of work or, may, you know, maybe they changed the way they were doing it. Um, chose to do it in ways that were safer over time or better suited to them or whatever, but, you know, found, you know, I, I know a lot of people who, uh, people who, frankly, were trafficked, uh, you know, I've met and still, you know, later in life have, you know, chose to go into the work um, because they, you know, feel mm-hmm. for them it's, it's the best option given their circumstances. And I think some people, you know, really struggle with it. Um, but, you know, feel it's the best option and some people just, you know, really do enjoy it in the scheme of things or enjoy it much more than they enjoyed waitressing or whatever yeah. their other options were. So, I, you know, it's, it's complicated, but I don't think we should, um, you know, well, it's our goal to say, hey, not all sex workers are, you know, desperate or, um, you know, in sex work because they you know, there's some something lacking in their lives, you know, some problem. Um, on the other hand, I, I think we don't have to paper over the fact that a lot of people did get into sex work because of um, some set of circumstances that, mm-hmm. um, you know, some difficulty in their lives or, um, and, and we should be able to, you know, hold both of those things in our head at the same time or hold space for both of those things, honor both of those stories, understand for some people that both both things are true, that, yeah. that, that, mm-hmm. that this is work that they chose, but at one point they were forced into or entered out of desperation. And, you know, for some people they were forced into it and got out of it, as, you know, as soon as they could and have nothing but bad things to say about it. I mean, all those things are true, and, and I think our position... Um, in the work we do, while we often do focus on people who um, have more of a positive relationship to it, though not always, yeah. um, you know, we definitely also want to 
honor the stories or the um, experiences of people who have, have had less less positive. Um, right. I just didn't. I just didn't want. I just didn't want you guys to think that I was making any assumptions either way about why either one of you, you know, got into the work. Is all. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Okay. Yeah. What I want to say about it, though, is that what I learned, particularly when I started doing phone sex, because that's the thing that for me has gelled the most, um, is that I've learned so much from doing that doing that work so much about people and their desires and their interests and their insecurities and their fears and I feel like the work that I've gotten to do um, has been like deeply meaningful to me and to other people for sure for sure so if I was to paraphrase the reasons both of you got it found your way and got into it um, and like and, and do it like a real short concise way PJ, yours was more out of exploration, and then uh, Jesse, yours was more out of like it went from academic purposes to to like to prove or disprove what colleagues were were, were saying about it, and then it went into going from that. It kind of manifested itself into a form of creativity for you. Yeah, actually, I think that's pretty true. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe for me it was in part exploration or, or, you know, or some kind of attraction to it that I, I really have a hard time kind of explaining just that it was there. And I think also part it really has to do with this, like, relationship um, to stigma and that I really struggled with the way that sexuality has been stigmatized and sex workers are really on the front lines of combating sexual stigma. And so I have, like, a profound respect for the work and mm-hmm. the people who are doing it because I, I think that it uh, holds the possibility of um, a certain kind of liberation from, um, I don't know, frankly, the negative, repressive um, experiences that I had when I was growing up and, and yeah. so so yeah I think part of it was also about like this desire to combat stigma for me well what was interesting I was thinking about this as PJ was talking it kind of reminded me of what you were saying in your episode when you talked about masculinity and living lives that other people have um, prescribed for you yeah yeah and how yeah that can be like a deeply alienating feeling I feel like one of the things that a lot of sex workers and what PJ is describing have been able to do is like live their lives on their terms despite what society tells them they ought to be doing. Yeah, yeah, that. I can dig it. <laughs> you, you should tell my story for me because I can't put it <laughs> I can dig it, I can yeah, dig that it. That was better than what I said. So, but, but I do feel... <laughs> So, so Jess, as an educator, can you kind of uh, tell us, like, what your favorite part about being an educator is? Um, I, I have a deep and profound love for teaching, um, and it's some, it's what I've done most of my adult career has been teaching, and you know, I. What do I love about it? I I love teaching freshmen. I love introducing people to new ideas for the first time. I think that there's something um, 
the, the like awakening to new ways of thinking about the world is so exciting to me and I love seeing I mean I've always taught philosophy or gender uh, gender and sexuality and philosophy and I don't know I like I like being able to give people new frameworks to think about the world and there's something that's so super exciting about those beginning stages of college that it's like hard to it's hard for me to explain but I've always loved that and felt like a deep calling to to open up the minds of students yeah and also like I have I have really really distinct memories so I was a student that hated high school and like barely graduated from high school and was always on academic probation because I just wasn't interested in what they were doing and then I went to college and my very first semester, I took an intro to philosophy class, and I had this female professor that I totally related to who just blew my mind on the first day of class, and she changed the course of my whole life because she gave me this, like, hunger for for knowledge and for wisdom that shaped the entire rest of my life, and so being able to create that, even just if it's for a small fraction of my classes, always makes me feel really, it's, it's a profound experience for me. Cool. So, so your, your, your work in academia and then your work outside of academia are not mutually exclusive because we've just kind of talked about on several occasions how they crossed over. Um, mm-hmm. So, so can you kind of um, touch a little bit on like how that's had a, either a positive or a negative impact on being an educator? So I'm at a crossroads right now because I dropped out of the teaching and the academia that I was doing and in the meantime started the sex work career and now I'm going back to teaching after I have started this. So this is going to be the first semester that I have an entire like sex work writing activism career that I'm bringing into like my more conventional teaching so I actually don't know how it's going to go I mean I know that when I got hired for the job I was very clear about one of the reasons that they hired both of us actually is because because of the work that we're doing um, because of the activism work that we're doing and they wanted to bring that into the department and so now I have to figure out exactly what that's going to to look like. I mean, it's not something that I have to hide because the entire department knows about the work that we're doing and that was part of the reason that they wanted us in the department because there was an underrepresentation of sex work research. But I don't know. It's going to be it's going to be interesting because I'm going to have to think about how much of my own experience I'm going to share and I think PJ's in a similar situation. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's new for me as well. I've been taught for some time, so uh, yeah. So has the yeah. We had this weird experience where we were both teaching, and then we both stopped doing that sort of work and did a lot of sex work and a lot of sex work activism. And now we have these CVs that are full of sex work stuff, and we're going back into teaching with all of that, and are going to have to negotiate that for the first time. Interesting. Interesting. So so so. We're fortunate. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say we're fortunate, though, because we've, you know, found a department, found a place where 
that's seen as an asset because we are teaching sexuality. Yeah. Um, but and we're in a particularly progressive um, department. Department. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that. I think you know. There's a lot of cases in which people would be like, "Oh, that's a liability. We're not going to hire you." So mm-hmm. uh, I do feel really fortunate that we were able to find jobs where they saw the work we've done and the experience we have as an asset. How has working in academia like affected your work outside of academia? Meaning, like, has it um, has it expanded how you view or handle your other work? And is that like an, a delicate balance? I think it's. I think it's. Um, I think it's been a positive thing in the sense that. Sex work is an interesting thing because sex work is a marketing job in which you create profiles that attract people who are into whatever you are, right? So particularly with my phone work, that's what I can speak to more. I've created very um, academic ads um, where... Of course, they're sexy, but they're also like, I have a background in academia, and I quote a French theorist on my phone sex ad, and I get people who are very interested in that. So I tend to get callers and clients who are interested in my background who often will call me and say, oh, this doesn't have anything to do with sex, but I wanted to talk about what your position is on X, Y, and Z. So... I have like an oddly academic sex work job because sex work is what you cultivate. And I think that that's something that is worth like thinking about. So it'd be hard for me to imagine it looking a different way only because that would mean I would have to be a different person. Right. I mean, it's not that hard for me to imagine because so many of my friends present, you know, how they want to present and they get different sorts of right yeah can you have a sense of what kind of clients they get and it's, yeah it is different it is different yeah I mean I don't want to say that my my interactions with my clients aren't sexual because that's totally not true but I think that my background as an academic shapes what those interactions look like it certainly helps with advocacy work. I mean, oh, the yeah. whole process of being trained as being an academic makes it easy for us to slip into a certain way of being that lawyers and politicians and other you know folks that are comfortable with journalists. And we can play that role when we need to if it's politically advantageous. Advantageous, so. uh-huh. uh, even though I also feel like it's kind of fake at times. It, you know. Um, there's a lot, again, I think there's a lot of value in academia. It's given us a lot of tools. It's made me a better writer and a better editor, mm-hmm. uh, a better thinker. Uh, it's introduced me to lots of ideas that I carry forward, but um, uh, academia is always also really self-involved and self-important, mm-hmm. and um, the structures of academia don't reward, they reward you for... Um, you know, getting cited a bunch in academia and for, like, getting recognition from academia and reward you, um, you know, almost not at all for having an impact on the world writ large. And I actually don't really care about other academics thinking I'm important. I actually care about doing good in the world. Yeah. And so it's, 
really ultimately very difficult for me to be successful in academia because my own personal goals don't align very well with the goals of academia. And so, um, so I, I, I was never really able to fully be within it anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my, my intent is just to take the tools I can get from academia and then put them into use elsewhere. Um, and maybe to translate sometimes between those two worlds. But I've always been much more interested in writing for a public audience than for an academic audience. Mm-hmm. You know, anytime I write a blog post, let alone an article, more people read it than will ever read an academic journal that takes two years to publish. Oh, absolutely. You know, so it's, uh, you know, there is, like, there's a lot of navel-gazing in academia <laughs> and not a lot of, like, um, productive... Uh, social mm-hmm. um, organizing or I don't know whatever activism or change making mm-hmm. and, um, and and I want to be wherever that stuff is yeah uh, and so uh, that's that's why I, I feel like we I always have to have a foot outside of it I can dig it so 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 PJ like you talked earlier about how like um, you know like doing sex work you know there are like some there's push there's pushback that you can get and there's some you know negativity that you have to 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 deal with in your role um from different outside forces um but we also live in a male-dominated society right and so i make the i'm making the inference that you know like your wife being a woman deals with certain double standards that even though you both in the same work and you both face pushback, there's extra mm-hmm. stuff that she gets that you don't get. You know what I mean? That you have a privilege That's of being a man that you don't receive. And so I yeah. Yeah, I wanted to know kind of what have you found is the best way to be supportive of her and and, and, and kind of talk about why you think that support is so important. Um, yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. And I, I think that's a really great question. Let me say, though, like, let me just lay out the context, because it is really complicated. Everything you said is true. There's right. absolutely a sexual double standard in our society. Women are absolutely more stigmatized for doing sex work than men are, um, just like women are more stigmatized for anything that has to do with sex than men are. Right. Um, or at least cis men and cis women. Um, but, uh, you know, that said, it is a little complicated because sex work is one of the few contexts in which women definitely have far more earning potential than men. Um, I didn't think so about that. And, and so, that, you know, that with sex work, there are some differences. And second, I mean, cis men, particularly cis and largely head-presenting men, um, as such as myself, are viewed with a pretty profound skepticism within the community. Um, and so... You know, there's always a level in which I kind of feel like an outsider within a lot of the spaces I go to, which are very much women-dominated or cis-women-dominated, and, you know, particularly in, like, the CAM and CLIP communities that we actually work in, um, though, like, within our activism, we're kind of connected to broader circles than that. Sure. Um, So all of that's true and complicated. On the other hand, when it comes down to dealing with, like, outside stuff, like, am, you know, all things being equal, like, 
with us being open about our sex work backgrounds, I think employers are more likely to discriminate against Jesse. I think people are more likely to call, you know, to call into question your parenting um, than they are to call in my parenting. And I think that's, it's difficult. I don't, I mean, I think you know Jesse and the case is that like we got into this together, we made these decisions together. I believe in what you're doing. I believe in the work you're doing. I believe in the power of being public in the way you are. And like, I mean, you know that I'm here like a hundred percent. Like that's, you know, this is something we've, a leap we've made together. And like, I, I don't know. I, I think there is that double standard, and um, and in my own way, as much as I can, I try to com- you know combat that or mm-hmm. call that out, or and frankly, to model masculinity in a way that you know hopefully is different, um, and to question those norms that mm-hmm. you know give rise to this discrimination. Um, and so, like we're aware, you know, I'm aware of that, and I think we engage that in our way, but at the end of the day, like, I, I can't change the, the way that employers might mm-hmm. discriminate. Um, we just work together. We work together on everything. I, you know, I am committed to your success as much as my own. I edit, you know, we edit each other's stuff. Yeah. We write classes together. We share, like, we, we kind of do a career together. Um, and I think in that way, as a couple, we're able to, um, because we work together so closely, we're able to mitigate a little bit of that for by giving each other opportunities, by mm-hmm. lifting each other up. Right. Um, but that doesn't, but that's just, you know, unfortunately that, you know, we are in a very unique situation and, and that doesn't like erase that, that sexual double standard right. for the world more broadly. And I think that's really difficult, uh, apart from like, trying to be a different kind of man myself and trying to call into those like gendered stereotypes into question every day and apart from raising better children we have three boys so we we you know have a lot of like socializing to do that hopefully isn't you know um teaching our kids toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. like you know but apart from those little micro things that i think are extremely important it's hard you know we're not going to just have like a vote next week to, to outlaw sexual double, you know, like it's a cultural thing and and, um, and we try to do that every day in our work to, you know, in the podcast and in our lives to push that as much as we can. Um, but it, it's going to be, it has to be a, a cultural effort and a social effort. It's, it's something that's so much bigger than us and mm-hmm. um, I don't know. So, so we do our part and I think we try to, to, um, balance that as best as we can or mitigate that as best as we can in our own lives but the reality is is that it's a real problem yeah I think that you I think that one of the things that we've done is that uh, you've been very supportive in very like material ways of me advancing my career in various ways (laughs) Um, by editing my work or by doing uh lion's share of the childcare, or by doing a lot of things that allow for me to have um to build a to build a career in a way that I have some level of security 
I think that those sorts of material ways in which you support me also help that. Yeah. And it doesn't happen in our case, but I, but in the rare, I mean, in the rare cases it does, I mean, I I try to be really resistive if somebody's erasing you Mm -hmm. from our our joint work. Um, And that's something I would definitely, you know, and that's, I mean, you happen to be my spouse and also my collaborator, but I'm also trying to be that way when I collaborate with other people on like academic work and writing and stuff. I think it's really important for men who are writers or researchers or people who are doing work to not allow other people to erase uh, women's achievements, Mm -hmm. um, to cite women, to make sure that other people are citing the women you're working with and to... Right. um, And I I just think, you know, that might seem like a small thing, but constantly reinforcing, hey, no, you know, Jesse does as much or more of this work than I do. I actually think we don't run into that a ton because most of our audience, you know, our our, our social circles are are women who very much recognize the work you do. But, you know, in the rare instances and sometimes in more academic conferences, since I'm like a little higher ranking than you or whatever, since I'm going to have my PhD, finish my PhD and all, um, there's some potential in that. Right. And those are the times where you got to be like, hey, like, you know, my wife doesn't necessarily have a PhD, but I will stand up in front of this conference audience and say that she deserves as much or more of the credit. So when you mention, you know, the work that I'm doing, mm-hmm. you know, make sure you mention the work that we're doing because yeah. you're sitting right here too. And, you know, those are the, the cases where I think you can really, you know, intervene. But I know it's hard to shift that culture. It's, it's just, it's, it really happens in those micro interactions, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you, uh, now, PJ, you kind of talked to like, um, how it is still kind of it's still kind of different because uh, you know th- that field of work is still kind of de- like heavily dominated by women but the the question I have for the both of you is when you're speaking from let's say you're speaking from like your your, your activist lens on your work um, do do either one of you notice the way you is the way you the way either one of you is received a lot different because of the gender dynamic like even though you may both be activists for the same thing and talking about the same thing and people may even notice and you know know that you're you know you're spout you're married do you still see that whole like maybe you know pj you're received or heard a little bit more because you're a male or vice versa like how does that go i don't know I think if I was going to say, I think it maybe goes in the opposite direction. I think I get a little more recognized for the joint projects that we do. Okay. And I think maybe that's because women are more recognized in sex work. I mean, you're definitely more trusted within the community. There's no question about that. And that's actually something I really struggle with is it's hard because I feel like really a part of this community, but I always feel like there's a great deal of skepticism. I actually think that what should, what one of the things we should say though, is that some of it has to do with our individual personalities too, because I'm much more yeah. social. Oh, absolutely. I'm more likely to interact with people and okay. I'm more likely. are also more willing to interact with you. I mean, it's it yeah. both ways. Mm-hmm. But, but that's, you know, that's a small point aside. I, I mean, I think that's a reality, and it's not like a, a woe is me. It's just important to recognize that there is a great deal of skepticism about men, and particularly cis men within um, 
within sex work communities, and and those that's for good reason. And also, I think people tend to, you know, they're so accustomed to interacting with clients that look and mm-hmm. identify like me that there's a certain script that sometimes, yeah, you know, people flip into or are accustomed to, you know, a, a lens that people are accustomed to viewing me through. Um, but then there's, you know, in other cases, I don't yeah. know. When, when we're at academic conferences, it flips the it other flips, direction. Right, it definitely yeah. flips. I don't know, you know, when we're in with dealing with lawyers and stuff, I think it could depend. I think that sometimes when I'm talking about, like, political strategy and stuff, if we're dealing with, you know, in those kinds of situations with, um, with politicians or lawyers, I think sometimes maybe I do get taken more seriously in that context as yeah. well. Um, even though, like, when we're talking about experiences or something or, like, narratives or, you know, then they might take you more seriously. So I think a lot of that gendered stuff does happen. It certainly happens in academia. I mean, yeah. we can both say unquestionably that, right. like, there's a huge bias within academia against yeah. um, women's voices. But in the other context, I think there's uneven gender dynamics, but they're just mixed in complicated ways. Right. That it's hard to. Okay, I um I know that one of the things that I you know thought about specifically too is like like my work like as a doula, um I've either gotten um like oh my god this is so amazing it's so great because I'm a male and it's a and it's a and it's a it's a female it's a predominantly female yeah. like field right so right. it's either it's right. great it's extraordinary and people applaud you. But the other part, it's but it's 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 two extremes. The other part is, I'm really interested to see the reception I get. Like the moment I go to, let's say there's a huge conference, right? And I go to yeah. it. Like, am I gonna get the is he serious type of uh, right. look yeah, or whatever? Yeah, yeah. I'm really, you know, I luckily I haven't got any of that yet. But that is something that I've definitely um, kind of curious about. And waiting to waiting to see if if that's definitely something that comes about. So um, mm-hmm. that's 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 also another reason why I kind of wanted to ask you guys that question because I I'm the, I'm a type of person that likes to compare that type of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. It, you I know, actually think it sounds really similar. I, yeah. I imagine that your experience as like a male doula is probably like more similar to my experience as like a Sex work activist, yeah. Yeah, so sex work activist, and I don't know most other things. Like I think being in like a, a really like a woman led space like that, um, and trying to navigate that um, is. It, I, I imagine we share a lot um, in terms of. I actually think, yeah. Although I think that it's somewhat different in the sense that I don't think that you necessarily get like applauded in that in that way for yeah. you know. <laughs> I think that there's something interesting about what you were saying, where people want to act as if you know you being a doula becomes more heavily celebrated than a female bodied person becoming a doula. Right. It's either yeah. it's either it's either like. Uh, a huge milestone, which it is something I'm super proud of, or like I said, it's yeah. either something that they don't take. Like I'm wondering if I'm gonna when I'm, when am I gonna run into that first group of people who don't take me serious right. at all? And then two, yeah. 
how am I going to handle that or how am I going to react to that? If you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, if right. you know what I mean. Because well, I, I, I know that it's definitely going to, I know that it's definitely going to come. I just haven't experienced yeah, it just yeah. yet. Yeah. There's got to be a group of, you know, feminists out there, you know, feminists, old school feminist duelists who, you know, will... Who will feel that their territory is being trampled. Yeah, or that you, you don't have the, you know, female body experience to, like, you know, or um, are part of the universal womanhood, or some, you know, like that there is something about being a doula that, um, you know, that, that women are uniquely qualified, or cis women are uniquely qualified to do uh, in a way that, like, a cis man might not be. I'm not saying that I agree with that, yeah. uh, but I'm saying that I would not be surprised if, like, you know, a certain strain of 70s feminism would very yeah. much. Um, take that position so I imagine you know someday you would encounter that but on the other hand I think you know we're in a moment where you know we are appreciative of gender diversity and mm-hmm. you know at, at all levels and understanding that like um, that gender isn't so black and white and that you know that there are uh, ways in which it's like really valuable to have men um, in spaces that were traditionally um, seen as women's spaces mm-hmm. and that how that can really like also be healthy in terms of like changing masculine socialization and like our assumptions about men and that can have like a really broader social impact if we like don't isolate men into conventionally male spaces which I know is something I tried to avoid my entire <laughs> life growing up with like with constantly how can I get out of being pushed into this you know male dominated space you know was, was sort of the game I played for uh, 18 years so. <laughs> um, so yeah I think that's really interesting and, and valuable yeah so <clears throat> I want to ask I also want to ask both of you what do you think is the biggest threat to sex work gender equality and sexuality Um, I mean, for, I mean, those are different questions. Yeah, um, for sex work, I think that the the way in which laws are being like constructed and carried out the, right now are it's like rise of the trafficking narrative. That yeah, has exploded in the last like ten years in the way that like quote unquote white slavery was. Um, a, ph- a phenomenon, like a cultural phenomenon in the early 20th century, you know, in the early 21st century, there's this like resurgence of all of this conversation about, um, about trafficking. And that I think is really, you know, deeply problematic to, um, sex workers, um, political rights hello are you there yeah are you there oh it's like connection lost for a second so. oh okay it just I was not sure if we uh... and, and then I don't know what would you say in terms of like 
I mean, I think the other question of like gender and sexual equality is probably uh, a different answer, don't you think? Yeah, I think it probably is a different answer. I mean, I think we're still, in terms of gender equality, I think we're still fighting the same battles that we've always been fighting, and I don't think that it's getting... Right, the pay gap still isn't closed, yeah. right? <laughs> I don't think it's getting much better. I mean, as a as a woman who worked in... Zero with women president. <laughs> yeah, as a woman who worked in a male-dominated field when I was in philosophy, I mean... I was treated really poorly and then I worked in a corporate job and I was treated very poorly in that and um, I think that um, you know women still do the vast majority of like childcare and housework on top of the jobs that they're doing and so I mean it actually doesn't work that way in, in our relationship but but it is still culturally the case and so I don't know, I think we're always facing the same things. Women are still sexually assaulted at, you know, really high rates. And I, so I think it's, I think we're still fighting the same battles that we've been fighting. Cultural inertia. Right, <laughs> it's just that, you know, the biggest threat to that stuff is just stuff's not changing fast enough. That we yeah. all agree it's a problem, but we're, we're not actually doing the things necessary to change it. Yeah, I actually have to say gender, like, gender expression and gender identity with transgender rights movement and gay gay rights movements, they've made tremendous strides. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think that that's caught up to just women's rights issues. Yeah, I mean, in fact, they're talking about rolling back Title IX. Yeah, and Roe v. Wade. I mean, so I... Uh, it's bleak. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that answers another question I had because I was going to ask what, like, you know, what was your was your outlook on it? How do you see the you know the battle ultimately ending up? But I think when you use a word like bleak, that <laughs> that kind of sums but it that's up. That's interesting. I mean, that's interesting, right? Because it was also bleak. You know, back in the seventies, it was mm-hmm. you know like. It, 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 there's a sense in which um, and what, what I think we're seeing now, just like, you know, we saw with, you know, a lot of the disillusionment in the, in the 70s, is that, like, these bad circumstances at times really galvanize social movements. Yeah, that's true. And right. so, on the one hand, I do think that in some ways things are re- reaching a low. Um, in other ways, I think the political energy and the organization, uh, you know, I think that, and it's not just my thoughts, we've interviewed and talked to people mm-hmm. who've been sex worker activists for, for decades now. Um, you know, we hear them saying that this is the most um, energetic the movement has, has been, been in their yeah. lifetime, or at least since the... Um, you know, AIDS crisis in the 1980s, this is the most, like, um, unified and aware and organized um, that the community has been. Uh, and, and I think that's true around other issues. And, I mean, my God, if, you know, if Roe v. Wade does get overturned, that will be tremendously awful for all of the groups that we're yeah. talking about. You know, but... On the other hand, I imagine that there will be a tremendous backlash. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I, on the one hand, things are really bleak, but but I also hope that 
you know, that that's the pendulum will swing the other way because we can change this. So people just need to get organized. So then it can be summed up with the the the, the age old adage of it's it's darkest before the light. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I can dig that. I can dig that. So, a couple more questions, because um, I don't want to take up too much of you guys' time. But I just got so many, qu- like, so much stuff that I'm trying to like learn from the two of you, and so many questions I had. So I'm gonna try to get them out here. But um, so what's the most liberating thing about what the two of you do together, uh, and as individuals professionally? Oh my gosh, that's so hard. I um. <laughs> I love our life. (laughs) I don't know. I love what we do. I feel like I feel very, uh, despite everything that I just said, I feel very um, grateful to be able to be a part of this community. I feel very grateful for the work that we do. Um, I feel grateful that we can do it together. I, I feel like the, um, I'm kind of, so there's so many different ways to answer this. I'm a very romantic person. I'm, I'm more romantic than PJ is, but, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm a romantic person. And I feel like, I feel like we have been able to create artistically, um, porn that, that is romantic, um, and that has a beauty to it. And so I feel really good about that. I feel like, I feel like I, we conduct our careers in a very strange way, so there's not a lot of couples that are, um, there's not a lot of couples. Uh, there are people who are in relationships, but they don't present uh, online or in their sex work personas and careers like as a couple. And so I feel like there's, you know, uh, there's, certain cost to doing that obviously the people who want to project themselves like into a fantasy with me have a harder time doing that unless but you just don't get those I, I just don't get them and I get other people who are interested in other things and so I like being able to we've just kind of decided that we're going to run our careers as the people that we are like exactly as we are and there's been something that's been super liberatory about that um, just by itself like yeah. just being who we are and deciding that that's how we're going to present ourselves and people can like it or they can't like it and it's up to them. Right. And I would say also, like, the other aspect of that or, like, more broadly is that we get to do things on our own terms. I mean, that's what's yeah. so great about... I mean, it sucks when you have that corporate job. Like, it sucks. It really right? It's like school training, right? <laughs> like, you know, and... I mean, one of the wonderful things about the life we've kind of carved out for ourselves, doing the writing, doing the sex work, doing some teaching, is that we really get to live on our own terms. I mean, mm-hmm. it's hard. We're and always it's like, a hustle. Yeah, it's a hustle. We're always like, shit, we need to, you know, figure out how we're going to make it to the end of the month. What do we have to do, you know? Um, it's, it's not an easy life, but... It, it, on the other hand, we get up in the morning and we do what we want to do, and we do it together, and right. it's amazing. So And it's like our vision and our work and yeah yeah I, I found that it was like extremely body positive too and that's not really something that we've talked about in this interview but um and a lot of people that we've talked to who've done any sort of uh pornography or cam work or anything like that have 
a lot of people have had the same experience where things that I was self-conscious about in terms of my own, like, attractiveness or body or sexuality, um, I'm, I'm just less body conscious now. I feel... I feel more beautiful, which sounds really, like, corny, but there's something about doing this, like, putting your body out there, putting yourself out there and having that appreciated um, that's, that can be a really positive experience, too. Right, because you're not letting, like, because, I mean, it's, if it's not common knowledge already, it should be. Like, we know how society tries to send out these, um, subconscious messages but also just blatant messages about um what everybody what everybody how everybody should look and and they put that they put that onus on women way more than men we see it for men too but it's really on women from you know they've talked about it from the way dolls look to to everything so i i can see how you would say like you kind of that enables you to break away from that and really live on your own terms And the thing that I think I didn't really fully understand until I started doing this work is that we get these messages that, like, you're supposed to look a women are given these messages that we're supposed to look a particular way and that that's the only way of being attractive. And once I started to do sex work, I saw that not everybody wants that. (laughs) You know, that this is a myth that we have that we've all kind of bought into, but when you start to see that there are people who find you totally beautiful just the way you are in in really large numbers, and that sounds, I feel a little uncomfortable saying this because it makes it sound as if, like, you go into the work seeking approval, and that's actually not what I did, but a byproduct of, like, putting my body out there was, like, this strange sort of body acceptance that I didn't expect. Right, and what's, I guess, kind of sad about that, though, too, is that it also, what you find in doing the work is that a lot of men and other people as well um, have, feel like a certain shame or guilt around what they find attractive because they, too, know they're supposed to find a certain... Ima- you know, image of like women's beauty um, attractive and right. they don't and yeah. they feel wrong for like being attracted to like I guess non-normative standards of beauty or whatever right. um, or yeah and um, and I just think that was you know that's another thing that we deal with but also like a positive aspect of the work in a way that we're overcoming stigma sex workers is to, like, teach clients that it's okay to desire, like, the things they desire to find beautiful what they find beautiful. And, yeah. that, like, they don't have to buy into society's norms either. And that that's, it's like a two-way thing mm-hmm. where, like, we're freeing each other. Like, you know, you don't have to feel guilt for... Liking what you like. a certain way, and then they don't have to feel guilt for liking a certain thing. And I think that, like, that's actually something that, like, porn communities, especially like the very the people who are really connected with their clients, like cameras and DIY yeah. porn producers, that's and phone sex operators, that's right. um, work that um, those sex workers are really actively doing. Right? Yeah, I think I think that what happens in sex work that people outside of sex work don't understand is that a lot of what sex work is 
is holding space for people to be themselves and to want what they want and to like be unashamed about that and that doesn't happen everywhere that doesn't happen hardly anywhere yeah, it doesn't happen in most places <laughs> yeah and so i think that there's a i think that sex work is a space in which people can explore in these very safe ways um their own desire. Yeah, that's so interesting. Like, once again, you better articulated my attraction to sex work than I did myself. But, you know, again, coming from, like, a very Catholic, very repressive, very sex-negative background, the idea of, like, holding that space for people Mm -hmm. and allowing them to escape the kind of guilt and shame that I was made to feel growing up seems like such powerful and important work that, like, it just seems intrinsically good to me mm-hmm. that I should do that work. Yeah, I mean, I get a lot of um, clients who want things that I've never thought about wanting or that aren't my particular kink or that just, you know, aren't things that I that are my go-tos when I'm aroused. But there's, But what I really like is I like being able to be there with somebody while they're exploring those things, and there's something that feels really powerful to me. Actually, it feels so similar to being in a birthing room with somebody and just allowing, like, opening space for them to relax into something. Like, to me, birth work, birth, birth work and sex work are so, so intertwined and so similar. Um, yeah, I... It's like, like truly meaningful. Like being in the midst of like creation in a way. Yeah. And yes, being in the midst of creation, just being with people when they're very vulnerable. I mean, laboring women are vulnerable because they're in a lot of pain and they have their own like fears. But and it's a supremely like intimate setting. With their desire too. Right. When for they sure. open up and share with you what they want and what they desire, oftentimes they come to sex workers with things that they do not tell their partners, that they don't tell the people that they're around because they're afraid of being shamed or because those relationships are too important to them. You know, they don't want to lose them and they're afraid of that. So they take those elsewhere and to be that elsewhere for someone where they can explore something but then go on with their lives, I don't know, I feel like that's a privilege. Yeah, for sure. I I would agree with that. Um, So you mentioned earlier about writing a piece like in the Washington Post. And I read that you have like worked with like Vice as well. Um, Can you kind of talk about how these opportunities came about and like what you learned from them? Um, Yeah, so the connection that I have with... Vice came about in part because we, PJ and I, were connected to the sex work community and because we have our podcast and we know editors and we talk to them about, it was very much connected to um, the sort of sex work that we were doing. Um, Oh, if my listeners are listening there, hold on pretty, uh, just hold on for a few for a second. Um, our call just dropped, and we will be buzzing them back here pretty soon. So I guess I'll entertain you guys here for a second um, while we await to get a call back. 
But uh, and I hope that you guys have been uh, enjoying the conversation so far. This has definitely um, been super informative. Um, so yeah, just uh, bear with me here for a second. Hello. Hi, sorry about that. No problem. Uh, yeah, so I was just saying that like a lot of the opportunities that I had came about through our connections that we made through the podcast um, and through, uh, I, I don't know how, um, through just kind of sex work activism. But the, the Washington Post piece, like I came because I used to be a grad student and I know a lot of people in academia and a lot of the people that left academia went into editing and so one of the editors at the Washington Post I like know from my academic life that he just reached found out I was doing work on sexuality and wrote to me and asked it was actually funny because he asked if I could write a piece on consent and BDSM and I was like no because I don't know anything about BDSM I mean I do but I'm not part of a BDS I'm not actively part of a BDSM community so I said no but I can write about sex work because I am part of a sex work community so I I'm tempted to say that like I just kind of you know magically got these opportunities <laughs> but but it's not really true I mean it's a little disingenuous like it was more about people that I knew because of different, you know. Yeah, it's one of the benefits of having the background you have. And, yeah. You know, doing all this academic work. Yeah, is that I, you know. You'd been, you'd made a lot of connections through that, and you'd have been writing for years. Right, and people are kind of familiar with, I did a lot of conferencing. You know, I traveled around the world doing conferencing, too, so people were kind of familiar with me. It's a little complicated because I changed my... <laughs> name, you know, I'm working under a different name, but people still know who I, who I am. So, yeah, I mean, it's just mostly through networking. Okay. And did you, like, did you really learn anything from those experiences? I mean, and the the reason I asked that question is, is, like, I've never written for a big publication or anything like that, but I've, like, seen certain, you know, certain people who have, like, make comments like, you know, how, how it can get, I guess, political, um, like, you know, bickering back and forth with editors over the content of their pieces or whether or not it well, should be published or not. Or I mean, the Washington Post piece is was highly political in the sense that I... I went through all of the processes to write the, pap- to write the piece and we had gone through all the final editing and then... My editor found out from his higher-up that they wouldn't publish it under my sex worker name. And so there was about a week back and forth where I was fighting this fight um, and saying that it was totally dangerous to have sex workers publishing under their legal names for all sorts of reasons and made like a pretty strong case for that, but ultimately lost because the Washington Post and some other like fairly large publications have real name policies. And so what I did is I turned around the next day and wrote a piece about about that experience and about why I ultimately ended up publishing it anyway, but why that was a really fraught decision for me, and it still is a fraught decision for me. And I was actually really concerned, not necessarily for my safety, because I operate in a pretty, you know, I don't have, I'm lucky and I don't have you know, stalkers and things like that. But, um, but I, 
I was really concerned that it was going to set a precedent for people within the community who didn't feel safe for doing that to, to do that and that it was going to exclude their voices. And I'm still not even sure that that was the right choice. You know, um, I'm still like concerned about that because I think that we do need to push back against those publications and um, fight for the ability for particularly sex workers who publish and do all of their work under their sex worker names to be able to legitimately do that. So, um, so there, there's a lot of politics around that and I'm still conflicted about it, but ultimately I decided that I wanted to do that because the piece that I was writing was about sex workers' voices in public discourse and I had done a lot of interviews of sex workers that were in the piece and I wanted their voices to be heard. So I kind of just pushed pushed it forward anyways so that they could be heard. And um, You took one for the team. But also, oh yeah, I did. <laughs> um, but, but it turns out that people were really gracious and really kind about it and knew that that was a hard decision for me and I appreciated that. And, well, everything else has been really, I've actually had really good experiences. I actually can't say that it was, it's, it's been really positive. Awesome, awesome. And so, yeah. and one of the last questions I have for you guys is, <clears throat> do you two have any plans in the future um, to do anything that doesn't already kind of fall in line with what you're doing right now? So, uh, so any just we like we write a book together. Okay, okay. I mean, but that kind of falls in line with that's just yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> we're really like passionate about the topics we're working on, and that's where like the future will take us. But I, I think that you know, we've got a pretty busy slate, and we'd really love to build our podcast. I mean, we would love to turn it into, you know. A job. Mm-hmm. I would love, you know, I would love to turn it into a radio show or something. We'd like to write a book. I mean, our, I think our goals are really to to just keep doing what we're doing. Yeah, but like take it to the next level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. One reason I ask is because I'm a person. Like I said, I'm an. Uh, I always have like the like. I'd say once a week, I come up with a new idea of like something. I'm like, you know what? I want to try that. Even if it's just for like yeah. a little bit to see how well I could do with it. And then just for so when it's all said and done, you know, like I have grandchildren or whatever, I can sit down and like tell my story. And it's like, like the story, like the movie of Big Fish, like tell all these stories and they're like, granddad, you did that and that and that and that. And I'm like, yep, I ain't so boring, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's why yeah, I kind of had that. We're just doing our thing, and we just want to keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Learning how to use lots of different power tools to fix up our very old house. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but we have kids, too, and I mean, we're, we're, we're busy. We, yeah. You know, there's only... I mean, only so much you can we do. Have, yeah, we have so many things we want to do, and we never have enough time to do it anyway, so... Mm-hmm. Got it, got it, got it. Well... You know, I'm going to wrap up here, but I really wanted to say, once again, I really appreciate you guys coming on, sharing your expertise, sharing your knowledge, really opening up yourself um, to my listeners and, and to me and being um, kind and patient enough to, you know, to answer all my questions. Um, 
and uh, yeah, it's just been a really it's it's been a great experience, and I've really enjoyed it. And I wanted you guys, oh, uh, yeah, and I wanted you guys to just kind of if you wanted to kind of if you know if anybody wants to get a hold of you guys or um, anything like that, do you want to kind of uh, pl- you know kind of plug yourself and kind of let people know how they can get yeah, a hold of sure. you? Yeah, thanks so much for having us on. It was really nice. I hope we didn't talk your ear off. <laughs> no, um, not at all. Not at you all. Can fi- you can find me. I have a website uh, with all of my writing on it at jessiezage.com, J-E-S-S-I-E, Zage.com, and I'm on Twitter at Textual. Yep, and pretty much the best place to get me is on Twitter, and it's PeachSage, P-E-E-J-S-A-G-E. Yeah, and check out our podcast at peepshowpodcast.com. All right, cool. So, so, yep. <laughs> so you all heard it. That is how you can get a hold of these two wonderful people. Um, once again, you guys, if you have any more questions, um, the two awesome people that you just finished listening to are Jesse and PJ Sage. Um, I'm you know, grateful for them coming on. Um, and if you have any questions for... For them, have any questions for me, um, please give me a shout out. Uh, give me any type of critiques, uh, anything, questions, comments, send them to chilltimepod at gmail.com and I will definitely get to those as quickly as possible. Um, but with that, I'd like to say thanks for joining me once again and I am out.
Tell me.